Um, if you're remaining in here, I'm going to ask that you go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we'll be in the book of Malachi in a couple weeks, uh, so I'm encouraging you to be, be reading the book of Malachi. That's where we'll be starting uh, in about the second week of October. The title today is The Gates of Hell Will Not Prevail. I think that will become clear as we make our way into this passage. On November 20th, we are going to have our annual meeting. At that meeting, we will vote in the budget. We will uh, affirm elders. We'll discuss various other things that we're hoping to accomplish as we go into 2023. Isn't that incredible? Like We're just like already through 2022. Um, Each year leading up to this meeting, we preach on elders and deacons. We're reminding us of the biblical roles that Jesus, our King and our Savior, has given the church. So this week, we'll be looking particularly at deacons. Next week, we'll be particularly looking at elders. Now, I imagine some of you might be thinking, how is me understanding deacons and elders important? I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. Am I supposed to? to be interested in this, in the inner workings of leadership and the way things happen in the church. And I would just say, yes, 100%. If you are a Christian, then you definitely need to understand how God has structured the church. The church is God's chosen means to proclaim the gospel in this world. God promises that he will preserve the church until his son Jesus returns. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this. He turns to his disciples and he says that he will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the entire world can turn against the church. Satan can can unleash all of his armies and aim all of his fiery darts at the church, but they will not prevail. The church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It is the very temple of God, and King Jesus himself promises to guard and preserve the church. And one of the ways that God preserves and strengthens the church uh, so that we would accomplish the mission of making disciples is by giving elders and deacons to the church. And so we're, we're going to specifically, again, look at deacons today, but, but know this. God gifts the members of the church to build up the body of Christ to advance the mission of the church. So it's through every member of the church working together that the gospel continues to go forth. So our main point today that we'll be looking at, God accomplishes the mission of the church through its spirit-empowered members. So we're particularly looking at deacons, but just remember, it's going to be applying to every single one of us as the spirit works in us to equip us for the building up of the church. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to stand. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 this morning. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Each week we stand when we read God's word as a reminder of the authority and the inspiration that this word comes to us. That it comes for the purpose of building us up, encouraging us, correcting us, and equipping us that we would do everything that God has called us to do. Chapter 6, verse 1 in the book of Acts. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, 
It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Then these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me pray. Father, Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for this historical, inspired document that you have given us that shows the growth and the advancement of the church in this world. And Lord, as we read about this account of a struggle that the early church faced and how you equipped them and strengthened them so that the word of God continued to multiply that more people became obedient to the faith, that more disciples multiplied in number. God, I pray that you use this text as a means of encouraging us, equipping us today, that every single believer here would know that they have been given the Spirit of God for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and building up the body of Christ. And it is through your Spirit that gifts the church that your name, will be proclaimed all over this world so that from the rising to the setting of the sun, you will be worshiped. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. The book of Acts, it documents the growth of the church. That's, that's just point number one. I just want to understand the book of Acts. It documents the growth of the church. The book of Acts, if you were to go to chapter one, it begins with Jesus ascending into heaven, where right, right now he sits at the right hand of the Father on his throne. But before he ascends, he turns to his disciples, and in Acts chapter one, verse eight, so he turns to his disciples, he turns to the church, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is telling the church that the church is empowered by the Spirit of God to testify of the risen Jesus Christ to all the world, to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation. And the book of Acts is, is really this historical document that proves that the gospel goes to the nations. In fact, let me just read a few verses. Uh, I think these are up on the screen, and we're just going to go through them pretty quickly. Actually, I don't think they're up there, but I'll just go through them quickly. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 4, 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Acts 5, 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 16, 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 19, 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So as you're walking through the book of Acts, you need to then say, 
what are all these verses about multiplying and the gospel going forth meaning to communicate? The church is an unstoppable force in the world. The book of Acts is the exclamation mark behind the words of Jesus when he says, the gates of hell will not prevail. The book of Acts is saying that's exactly what happens. In the book of Acts, we see the faithfulness of God to preserve his church and to advance the church in the world as it testifies to the gospel of Jesus. We just see it multiplying, 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 multiplying all the way through the book of Acts. But that doesn't mean it's easy. And so, in fact, Luke, like a true historian, he doesn't just record the advancement of the church, but he also records the difficulties that the church faced. And so that kind of brings us to the next point. The life and mission of the church will always be under attack. It's good news that God's word never shies from the fact that as Christians we suffer. Like I hope you know, it never shies from that. So in John 15, 18, this is what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. And we looked at Revelation a couple weeks ago, Revelation 1, 9. In the very beginning of that, John says, and remember, John's the apostle. John's the one that said that Jesus loved. And he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in pain, in suffering, in affliction. And so one thing that all throughout the New Testament we're being reminded of is that the church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. As Christians, we're on foreign soil, and Satan will do everything he can to attack and destroy the church. And in the first six chapters of Acts, we see at least three tactics that Satan has in which he will continually attack the church. So tactic number one, persecution. In Acts chapter 4, 3, Peter and John, apostles, are arrested for preaching the gospel about Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, verse 17, they're arrested again. In chapter 5, verse 40, they're beaten and they're ordered, do not preach the gospel anymore. To which if you know Acts chapter 5, they said, well, we will continue to preach the gospel. In many countries today, we see uh, per physical persecution taking place. In fact, right now, we, we already alluded to earlier this morning, that many of the missionaries that we support in India um, are, have been arrested for sharing the gospel. In fact, one of our missionaries that we support is arrested right now. He's in jail, and they're unable to get him to be released. In fact, I received this update on Friday uh, from Matt Smith, who leads Project 92, and he said this, and this comes from one of our missionaries in India. Persecution in northern India is on the rise. The agitation and activity of Hindu radicals is increasing against Christ followers in mission work. In the recent days, so this is, this is what's happened in the last month, 14 houses of Christians in our areas of operation have been destroyed. Three missionaries are in jail. 173 families have been excommunicated from their villages due to their decision to follow Christ. Now, just so you know what that means, that means all their stuff is thrown outside the village and they're removed from the village. So the place of protection where they live, home, is no longer home for them. This being said, however, the Lord, through his workers, is actively reaching the lost with the good news of Jesus. So he says, this is the negative that's happening, but then he says this. 
our missionaries shared how 63 new villages are being reached by teams. 71 people have decided to go all in, that's what he writes, by following the Lord in baptism, and 17 new fellowships have begun. He writes, in spite of the pushback against Christian workers, yet they are hungry for training. In the past quarter alone, eight short-term trainings have been conducted in various places, equipping these frontline workers to be more effective in outreach. What did we learn? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. When there is persecution that comes from outside against the church, God uses that. We see in Acts. We see all throughout church history. We see literally today in India that's used for the advancement of the gospel. That tactic has never worked for Satan. But he has others. Number two, corruption. In Acts chapter 5, we read about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Many of you know that story. They sold some property, and they said that they gave all the money to the church. Most likely, they wanted to be seen as generous. They wanted probably prominent positions within the church. But what we know is that they actually kept a lot of the money. They were not honest. They were looking for leadership. They were looking for positions of power. And so Peter turns to him and says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The result is both Ananias and Sapphira will fall down dead. And we read the church continues to grow in its love for God. Satan loves corruption. In fact, in Acts 19, we're told that he will continually send wolves into the church. It's easy In fact, uh, there's ministries dedicated to highlighting the failures of the church. Do you know that? I mean, that is a a sad, sad truth. But there are ministries dedicated to pointing out, this pastor did this, this church did this. And it doesn't take much time if you get on the internet to see that some church has embezzled money or some leadership structure has wielded its power and hurt others. We constantly must be careful and we must Guard the positions of leadership within the church. But what we see in Acts is even though there will be corruption that will come at times within the church, God will preserve his church. Number three, and this is what's going to bring us primarily to our text today, is tactic number three. It's it's distraction. This is one of, I think, Satan's greatest strategies, especially in Western worlds like, like the United States. And by distraction, what I mean is Anything that moves us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ that will cause division. This could be theological positions like tongues or prophecy. This could be color of carpet. This could be chairs or pews. This could be building projects. This could be false teaching, apathy, or even meeting physical needs like giving food to the widows in the church can be used as a means of distraction. So here in Acts 6, we see that the Hellenists have complained that the widows are being neglected, that their widows are being neglected. Now the Hellenists, they're Greek-speaking Jews. They have largely accepted Greek culture ever since Alexander the Great in the, uh, around 330 BC. And they regard Palestinian Jews to be narrow-minded and uncultured. Then you have the Palestinian Jews And and they continue to speak in Aramaic and Hebrew, and they consider themselves pure Jews. So very likely, there's there's some type of favoritism taking place. There's some type of partiality. And, And what we're seeing is that there's a physical need that's now threatening the unity 
of the church. So we see there's a problem here, and this isn't a minor problem. This physical need is exposing a a spiritual problem within the church. And so we have to go, so what's the solution? What's going to happen? And so our next point is the Spirit of God gifts the members of the church to overcome adversity and accomplish the mission. This is what we're going to see, and this is how it applies to every single one of us. First, we see some are gifted for the ministry of the word. In verse 2, we see the apostles gathered together, and they said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Now, some people read that and go, so they're too good to serve tables? That's not what's taking place here. Rather, what we'll see is that the need is extremely important. So they're actually going to get people who can dedicate more time to this ministry to meet this need. What we're, but what we do see is the need to prioritize the preaching and prayer ministries of the church. That's the first thing. There is a real need, but before that need gets met, we need to make sure that the preaching and prayer is not neglected. I'm sure someone in Acts, in the early church said, you know who I think would be really good? I bet Peter would be amazing at this. I bet John would be fantastic at coming alongside. So they're already doing some great things. Why don't we ask them to help serve the tables? And it sounded like a good idea, but it must be resisted. All throughout Acts, all throughout the New Testament, we see that it's through the preaching of the word that the church grows and advances. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. And he preaches a message. 3,000 people come to Christ on that day because of the hearing of God's word. All throughout the book of Acts, as I was reading it earlier, uh, the occasions where it talks about the, the advancement of the gospel, it says it like this. The word of God continued to multiply and increase, which is a testimony of preaching and prayer. Romans 10, verse 13 and 14, it says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The only way someone comes to faith is because someone has shared the gospel with them. Good works will not save people because good works do not communicate the truths of of the gospel. It displays them, but it does not communicate a man named Jesus came, died on a cross, rose again three days later, and he's the son of God. Our works will not show that or not proclaim that. We need words to actually communicate that, not trying to undermine works, extremely important, But we need to proclaim the truth. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes from the hearing of God's word. Albert Moeller said this, the church is created by God's word, sustained by God's word, and indeed, without the word of God, a church ceases to be a church. So if we were to to not have the Bible up here this morning, or, or maybe it is sitting up here, but we don't use it. We don't preach from it. We just give 10 tips to a better marriage or five ways to have a bigger growing church. But we don't talk about the, the word of God. We're not a church. There's no point to gather. Because you can find all that on YouTube by some TED Talk, and it's probably going to be better. But if we open up God's word and we say this is inspired for us by God to build us and encourage us and correct us and train us, 
and we're going to live according to this word. That's where the church is. It's when we hear this word proclaimed that faith goes out. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when will the end come? When will Jesus return? When the poor are fed? When the homeless are clothed? Those are good things. Again, those are good things. We should do those things. But we must never compromise on the preaching of God's word. And that's what we see here. The necessity of God's word in the lives of believers to build us up every day and for the purpose of going out so that we would proclaim the word so more people would hear the word of God through the spirit and become saved by the grace of God. So we can't compromise on the preaching of the word. So what's the solution? How is the church to meet this problem that has occurred? What we see is that there are also some who are gifted for the ministry of table service. Seven men are chosen by the church and appointed by the apostles to meet this need. And while the Bible does not call these men deacons at this time, this is surely what led to the office of deacon being appointed in the church. You can read like in 1 Timothy 3 where it talks about the qualifications of an elder, the qualifications of a deacon. And what we see is that elders are those who primarily equip the church through the preaching and the ministry of the word and prayer. And the deacons are those who come alongside and build up the church through acts of service. Both are necessary. Deacons are a necessary position that is essential to the health and the mission of the church. And so let me give four ways that we see the importance of deacons emphasized in this text. Number one, deacons are godly individuals filled with the Spirit of God. Notice who's chosen to serve tables. Seven Godly men. They're not going, who can wipe a table? Who's breathing? Like that's sometimes how churches operate, right? Like, hey, we need someone to lead this ministry. Are you willing? Can we convince you, persuade you, pay you anything it takes to get you in there? But what we have here is that they're looking for those who are godly. They're looking for those who have a good reputation those who are wise, and those who have demonstrated that they are full of the Spirit of God. These men stand out. They have godly influence. And so how do they demonstrate their godliness? By serving tables. We learn a lot right here on what it is to be a part of the church. Mark 10, 44 says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Godly leadership in the church is never about lording one's power and authority over others. It's about serving others. It's about how do we place the needs of others before our own needs. And so deacons are to stand out in the church as an example to us all. This is how we live. This is how we serve one another. Number two, deacons guard the preaching of the word. It's because these men serve tables that the apostles and the elders are able to preach the word. If the physical needs of the church are not met, then there's going to be compromises made elsewhere. They are important. They must be met. The answer is not Peter and John do more, or whoever the pastor is, or whoever the elder is. They just do more. We add to their job description, which is always kind of fun. You know, that's the invisible ink at the bottom of everyone's job description in church. We'll just add more stuff. But rather, the answer is for more believers to use their gifts for the good of the church. 
That's the solution. There's a need. It's a physical need. It's real. It must be met. The way that's going to be met is we need people who are godly, who are wise, who love the body of Christ to step up and lead in those ministries. Number three, deacons guard the unity of the church. In verse one, we read, there's a complaint. Grumbling is occurring. Resentment is brewing. Division is very possible at this moment. Now remember, this is infant church right here. This is in the very beginning of the growth of the church. Satan is doing everything he can to divide the church. And do, do not ever underestimate the power of grumbling. Do you remember the wilderness generation? When Israel comes out of Egypt, what did they do from day one? Grumbled, grumbled, grumbled. And in fact, their grumbling led to disbelief and rebellion, which eventually led to a 40-year detour in the wilderness where an entire generation did not enter into the promised land. Grumbling is a powerful weapon of the enemy that must be resisted. And we grumble when we are placing our needs and the things that we want and our preferences above everything else. And we're demanding for those things to be met. And grumbling is dangerous because when you begin to grumble, everything you see is through the lens of bitterness. So no matter what happens at that moment, it's not good enough because it didn't meet your, it didn't meet your standard or it wasn't done the way you would do it. So you grumble and you grumble. The church can grow. Disciples can be made. And the church can still grumble. Grumbling is a dangerous weapon of the enemy that he will use it for division. So I want to encourage you just at this moment. Do you have anger within you? Do you have resentment? Do you have bitterness? Is there grumbling within you? When you think about the church and you think about what are the the last 15 things you've said about the church? Were they things of encouragement? Were they things of excitement? Or were they grumbling? Are you constantly beginning to see what's not there or what's not being done? Or are you seeing who is there and how things are being accomplished? So I want to encourage you, if you begin to see that today with any of the spirits, like opening your eyes, you're going, wow, I do think I grumble. I do kind of see cup is half full all the time when I'm looking at the church. I encourage you to confess your sins today. And if you need to, to confess them to one another, if that's necessary, and know that there's forgiveness in God and trust in the Spirit to continue to work in you that you would be used for the building up of the church rather than the tearing of it down. And notice what happens in verse 7. When, when, these, when these men have been brought in as, as deacons to, to serve the body, to do this table service, what happens? Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. The church advances The deacons ensure the church is built up together in love and the gospel goes forth. There's unity within the church. The deacons are there holding together the church. Physical needs arise and they meet those to demonstrate the love of Christ and the unity of the church. Which leads us to the fourth one, deacons display the love of Christ. These men willingly serve tables. They do what might be considered lowly and they do it with joy. And in doing so, we need to remember that they're pointing us to someone. When Jesus came, he served the tax collectors, 
He ate with them. He served the blind. He served the lepers. On, what, on the night before Jesus was crucified, do you remember what Jesus did in the upper room? He puts the towel around his waist and he gets on his knees and he goes around to all the disciples. He washes their feet, the feet that earlier that day were, washing, were walking through the mud and the dirt and the grime and the dust of the streets. This job was reserved for the lowliest of the low of the servants. All the new servants, lowest on the totem pole, this is their job. But Jesus willingly puts the towel around himself and shows his love for the disciples by washing their feet. Deacons display the love of Christ. They are a powerful reminder to the church every time we see them of how Christ loves the church and serves the church and the unity that we have together. In fact, they remind us of the words of Jesus in John 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see how powerful the role of deacons is? They're just highlighting the love of Christ for one another. It's by our love for one another that the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus. This is why Satan loves to cause division. He wants us to rather to love one another and build one another up, to be angry, to be bitter, and to tear one another down. One commentator said this, when Satan does not succeed in stopping the church with a frontal assault, he attacks from within. This usually, hap this usually happens subtly, an invitation not sent, a job unnoticed, a critical comment overheard, jealousy over something that really does not matter. And when the murmuring begins, the devil smiles. I want you to think about the things that we get upset about in the church often are very, very, very tiny little things. An iPad doesn't work. People came in the wrong door. Not enough seat. My seat was taken. There was kids in my seat this morning, by the way, I'm just saying. <laughs> if you can make sure that doesn't happen again. No, I'm just um, But we must remember, so what's happening, the, like elders, deacons are simply an example to the church, of every member of the church, of how we work together to advance the gospel. The text is not given to us, like we're not to read the book of Acts, and then, and then sit back and go, oh, so we just let them do the ministry, and the majority of us are just supposed to sit back and do nothing while we expect the elders and deacons to do everything. That's not the point. The point is we got to go back to Acts 1.8. Read that with a lens throughout the entire book of Acts. The church is meant to go forth to the nations. We see Satan attacks the church, and what do we see? God preserves the church, and it advances. Context determines how we understand the flow of the book of Acts and every book of the Bible. And what we see is that God raises up those who are gifted within the church the body, every member, to meet the very needs of the church. This is what we read. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, which means we're all going to have different gifts. And if we have the same gift, we're going to have different measures of the gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, 
but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So why do we have these varieties? Why do we have different gifts? Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why are you gifted by the Spirit? To build up the body of Christ. Why do you have the Spirit of God in you? To serve the good. For the common good of the church. We can't miss the truth. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have the Spirit of God in you to build up the church. Not optional. It's why you're saved. You have been saved so that through acts of love and words of grace, the body would be built up and the gospel would go forward. The church is the means. No other. It is the means of accomplishing the mission of God here on earth. This is why Satan unleashes his entire arsenal against the church. This is why he wants us to be, this is why he wants us to grumble, to be discontent, to be divided against one another. And so the, when we think about the fact that God has used individuals and then he gifts us, this should never move us to pride or arrogance. Rather, as we're making our way through the book of Acts, or we look through the letters in the New Testament, or we even look at how we live today, the fact that God uses you and I as a means of accomplishing his eternal divine purposes of the gospel going forth to the world so that his name will be, comp- will be proclaimed from the rising to the setting of the sun ought to move us to humility and in awe of our God that he is so powerful and so great that he can use the likes of you and me. Isn't that incredible? Like he could just do it all, but rather he delights in the sending forth of his spirit to work in you, to strengthen you, to equip you so that you would partake of the remission that God has given of his name going forth. And so what happens when the church guards the preaching of the word and prioritizes the building up of the body of Christ? What happens when that happens? And that brings us to our last point. The church is strengthened and the gospel advances. We go to verse 7. It says, The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Three words. Increased, multiplied, and obedient. Those three words should stand out. What do they communicate? The church advanced. The gates of hell did not prevail. Satan's plans are once again thwarted. That's what those words communicate. And don't miss the fact a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests are steeped in Judaism. They're entrenched in it. And yet, what they're seeing, as these priests come to know that Jesus Christ is the true high priest and the true great sacrifice, that all those sacrifices and all the things of the temple that we practiced in the Old Testament were not an ends, but they were a means to them. They were pointing 
to someone, and that someone was Jesus, who would come and be the perfect high priest, who would be the perfect sacrifice, and these priests are now realizing that Jesus is the goal of the entire Old Testament, and now they're reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ, and they're seeing that he is king, he's the savior, he's accomplished all things, there's only forgiveness of him. We don't need to go to a physical temple because the church is the temple in which now God dwells. That's amazing that they see it. And they're serving now the body of Christ. When the church prioritizes the preaching and ministry of prayer, and they build up the body through gifts of table service, the gospel goes forth. So it brings to the question, how are you and I serving in the church today? And don't, don't limit yourself when I say it to like a Sunday morning gathering only. I think sometimes we only think that. That's certainly a way, a wonderful way, but not the only way. But I ask you, how are you serving? How are you using the gifts God has given you to build up this body right here today? You have been saved by Jesus and gifted by the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you to work through you. You got to know that. It's the reason you've been saved. To now build up the body of Christ so as we grow in love, we would display the love of Christ as the gospel is proclaimed and more people will come to know Christ. So you have the Spirit of God in you if you believed in Christ and he dwells in you to work through you. So how are you displaying the work of the Spirit in your life? That should be something every time you're driving here to church, you're thinking, how am I going to build up the body today? Don't just come. Like, we're glad you're here and glad if you just came today, but next week, don't just come the same way you came today. Come thinking, the Spirit of God is in me, so I'd be used to build others up. How will I do that? What does that look like? Now, sometimes we have reasons why we don't serve. Number one, I'm busy. And there are certainly seasons in which we can be more involved. And sometimes there are seasons we can be less involved. But no matter what season you're in, you're saved to serve. So it doesn't matter the season. Sometimes we're like, oh, I'm in this season. I can't serve. No, you're in this season. You'll serve less or, or different. But you were saved for a purpose. And the purpose is to build up the body of Christ. There's no vacation on that. And I would ask you, what is more important than the mission of God being accomplished in this world and in your life? Is there something greater than that that's making you too busy? Because if that's the case, I think, I think we have reprioritizing to do. And I would urge you, especially if mothers, fathers, um, be involved in church. You should at times be pulled away from your home to be at church. And your kids should see that as a means of prioritizing the church. And you're like, again... It doesn't mean you're here all the time, especially if you're a father, you need to be at home or a mother, but you shouldn't be home all the time. Your kids should see you here and they should see that we are part of the church, that it does affect our plans and the way we go about each week. If you must do less sports, make less money, give up certain hobbies, travel less and be more involved in the church. Think through what is most important and how do I live to advance that mission? Sometimes it's just, how do I always move to the next level? 
How do I move up the corporate ladder? But the corporate ladder sometimes pulls us away from church. So we have to say, do I want to go that ladder or is there a better way to live my life? So I encourage you to wrestle with those things. Number two, sometimes we say, I don't feel qualified. And I hear that. And I think, I think we try to say that as if we're being humble. Um, but it's really arrogant. It's really, really, really arrogant. So just, just think through. See, I would say the majority of things that we often do, we don't think about what we do. We just do them. Technology is a great way. We get our phone all of a sudden. We can be on our phones all the time. Not that it's bad to be on our phones, but do we think about what we're doing on our phone and how it moves us away from community at times? We need to think through certain things. Um, Sometimes we, we say we're, we're too busy for church or I'm not qualified, but have we thought through that? You have God in you. He saved you. He regenerated you. He breathed his life in you. He guides you, strengthens you, equips you. He gave a body of believers around you to speak truth in you. What else do you need? So it, it sounds humble, when we say, well, I'm not really qualified, I don't know how to do that, well, hold on here. We'll teach you, we'll train you, we'll equip you, but more importantly, you have God in you. I think so often we underestimate the power and role of the Spirit in our life, but no, he's in you, he saved you with the purpose of using you so you would be serving within his church to build up the body of Christ. So you're not underqualified, you're overqualified for everything. Do you get that? You're overqualified. The one who spoke creation into existence, parted the Red Sea, breathed life onto dust so that Adam and Eve arose, he's the one who's in you. That's incredible. What else do we need? And he provides a body of believers around us to equip us, to encourage us, to walk through us. So you're not underqualified, you're overqualified for everything that God is calling you to do because his grace will provide everything that you need. Number three, we often say, well, I, I don't know what to do. Um, ask someone, jump in, serve and trust that God will place you where you're needed. Sometimes we say, well, I don't know if that's where I'm best fit. That's fine. Let's jump in and we'll figure it out together. I find God often through acts of obedience will begin guiding us to exactly where we need to be. But through acts of apathy, it's really hard to get to where we're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Because we're not going to find anything if we're just sitting on the couch. But as we're actively looking and praying, God, just use me. I'm going to serve here because there's a need here now. I can meet that need. And God, if you want me to be here for the rest of my life, I will serve there or guide me to where you would have me serve. And trust that through acts of obedience and dependence upon his spirit, he's good. He's a good father who wants you to be in places where he will use you in incredible ways for advancing the gospel. And we'd love to talk to you. You can come talk to me, any one of the other elders. And we'd love to talk to you about so many ways. In fact, one way that's going to be coming up really soon and is seasonal is the Samaritan's Purse. We are a drop-off location. There's going to be many churches that will be coming here and individuals to drop off boxes. They'll be shipped to go all around the world to proclaim the gospel. We're going to need people here during that week that that happens to, to be a part of that and to help bring in those boxes. But know this, 
God has given you gifts to build up the body. We need every member serving, not so we get bigger, not so we can do more, but so we guard against distraction and division and the body of Christ will be built up. The church as a whole and you individually are the means God uses to advance the church and push back the gates of hell. You've been saved to serve. I want you to think about this. How much stronger would the church be and how many more people would be reached if every member used their spirit-given gifts to build up the body? Just, Just think that. And I just want to invite you and encourage you that if you've been saved by by the blood of Christ, you've trusted. We want you to be involved as much as you can. Not so we become bigger, not to make our name, but so the body would be built up and the name of Christ would be proclaimed. Do not underestimate the power of the Spirit in you. He has saved you, he dwells in you, and he strengthens you so you would be used in incredible ways for the building up of the church, the advancement of the gospel, and that the gates of hell will not prevail. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray, and then we are going to take communion where we specifically think and remember how Christ has saved us, that we would be a church in which he dwells.